think I'm on. There we go. Um, thanks, Ben. You said my wife's name correctly. He was panicking. He wasn't sure if that was going to happen or not. And I told him if he didn't, I was going to harass him for the first 10 minutes of the sermon. But I guess I won't do that. Uh, like you said, we are in the book of Acts today. I understand that y'all are going through a series called Witness. Um, so we're in Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 1. We're going to actually read through verse 28. So go ahead and open, open there. I'll do that with you. As you open, a couple of things to note. Um, Luke is writing, and he is writing his history of the early church. And the reason he's writing it is to make sure that we know how church works, how church functions, and what is the mission of the church. On, this specific ver- on these specific verses, Calvin writes this. He says about, about what's going on in this text. As soon as the truth of the gospel appears... Satan sets himself against it to defeat it from the outset. But God gives his children invincible strength so that they can withstand Satan's attacks. And that's what exactly is going on in this text. From Acts chapter 1 up until this point, the church has kind of advanced with very little opposition. They pray and then miraculous things just start to happen. Thousands of people are coming to Christ and they're They're forming this tight knit of devoted um, disciples of Christ. And for the first time, we look at how the church, its members, and us corporately, how we are to deal with this kind of opposition. So as we read, starting in verse 1, he wants us to get a, he wants us to have from this text courage to honor God, even in the midst of fear, opposition, and intimidation. So let's read this together, starting in verse 1. I'm reading from the New American Standard. It says, They were speaking to the people, the priests, and the captain of the temple guard, and the Sadducees came up to them, being greatly disturbed because they were preaching to the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in jail until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the message believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem, and Annas, the high priest, was there, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, excuse me, and all who were of high priestly descent. When they placed him in the center, they began to inquire, by what power or in what name? Have you done this? Then Peter said, filled with the Holy Spirit, rulers and elders of the people, if we're on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you and to the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, the man stands before you in good health. He is the stone which the rejecter, this, he was the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which has become the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Now as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. 
And seeing the man who had been healed standing with him, they had nothing to say in reply. But when they had ordered them to leave the council, they began to confer with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But so that it will not spread any further among the people, let us warn them to speak no longer to any man in this name. And they summoned them, and they commanded them not to speak or to teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. When they had threatened them further, they, said, they, they let them go, finding no basis on which to punish them on account of the people, because they were all glorifying God for what had happened. For the man was more than 40 years old, on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. When they had been released, they went to their own companions and reported all the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they lifted up their voices to God with one accord and said, O Lord, it is you who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them who by the, by the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of our father David, your servant said, Why do the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise a vain thing? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. Let's pray and we'll look at this text. <clears throat> Father in heaven, be gracious to us this morning and teach us how to be faithful. Teach us how to draw strength from you. And I pray uh, for me, your, your weak servant, oh God, would these truths hit me when I live these things out, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Um, a hero of mine is an old man by the name of John Perkins. He was born in 1930, African-American guy. He's still living to this day um, in his home state of Mississippi. He was born in rural Mississippi to a mother that died upon giving birth to him. They were so poor that she couldn't, uh, she, didn't, she couldn't in her food supply get enough nutrition to supply the baby and herself. And he, as it were, sucked the life out of her and upon giving birth, she died. So he grew up, his father abandoned the family. He grew up with his mother who was a share, or with his grandmother who was a sharecropper. And he said it was at 11 years old that he first encountered economic injustice. At 11 years old, he goes to a property owner and wants to hire himself out to help provide for his family. And in that day, a dollar to a dollar and a half was the, the normal wage for, for, for a day's labor. He works his hands to the bone for that day by the sweat of his brow. And he comes to, he finishes up his work and comes to the landowner and the landowner gives him 15 cents. And he knew in that moment that if he were to complain, his very life 
would be at risk. So he had to just swallow it and move on. That was the first twinge of racism that he could remember. A few years later, his older brother Clyde comes back from the war. He's, uh, uh, John Perkins is 16 at this time. His older brother Clyde comes back from the war, from serving his country faithfully, and gets into a heated altercation outside of a movie theater in Mississippi with a police officer. The altercation ends with the police officer killing his older brother and his older brother dying in the hands of Dr. Perkins. Um, for fear of his life, uh, he, he had never had a good encounter at that point. He had never had a good encounter with a white person, he said. And uh, his family that was still around, for fear of his life, sent him away to California because they thought that the cop who had killed his brother was going to come and, and do the same to him. So he moves away in, in despair and in shame and in hurt and in brokenness with a third grade education and starts working in a mill. He, he ends up marrying his, his uh, longtime sweetheart, Vera Mae, and they start to build this life in California. They have seven children, and he's working in an, in an, in an industrial uh, plant, and they're, he's just building this family. And he, by, he, Though he only had a third grade education, he was really working hard and, and making something of himself out in Cali. It was when his oldest son, Spencer, got invited to a good news club, which was like a glorified youth group, from my understanding, that everything changed. Uh, Perkins wasn't a, a religious man by, by any stretch of the imagination, but what happened was his son started coming home with this joy that was really strange. Um, he was singing these songs from, that, he, that he had learned from this good news club that were just really different, and he didn't know what to do with it. And slowly but surely, Spencer started to fall in love with Jesus, and that love started to spill out. So, so Spencer would just beg his dad, Dad, please come, come, to, come to church with me. Come to church. Come to church. And eventually, because of the joy that he had seen from his son, he goes. And he didn't go to the, to the big church service, but he ended up going to the Bible study. And in the Bible study... They were going through Galatians, and he started seeing something very strange about Paul. He saw that Paul was willing to sacrifice not only for, for his own gain, but for some religious purpose, and it just confused him. Um, he said, through that, I started to realize that this Jesus had a, a joy and a purpose and a reality that I had no idea about. And in that moment... <coughs> John Perkins gave his life to Christ. Well, like I said, he, he was a hardworking guy, and he had built this life for himself and for his family. Um, and when he came to Christ, that same passion and that same fire that he had for, for building his own world and his own kingdom, he now had to be a blessing and a good to the community around him. So immediately he started to, in the name of Christ, he started to help these college students that were organizing, um, fighting against economic and educational uh, injustices, as well as fighting for voter registration rights. So he would often be in the mix with these college students, whether bailing them out from jail or actually marching with them. 
And um, his, his newly found faith in Christ mobilized him into this action. One day, he wasn't even a part of a particular march. His faith was, his newly found faith in Christ was deeply tested. He, um, he goes to bail some college students out of a, out of a protest, uh, out, of a, out of jail after a protest that he wasn't even a part of. And the officers knew who he was because he had been so active. So they snatch him and they throw him in jail. And he said all night they beat him and they tortured him. And they tried to deter him from doing the things that he did. He said that there was one particular officer that kept on spurring out, uh, spewing out the the N-word. And he was beating him with the back of his revolver. Um, And then he would put the gun to his head and spin it and play Russian roulette with Dr. Perkins. He said this about that night. He said, in that situation, the only thing you can do is just pray. And he prayed and he said, God, if you let me out of this place tonight, because he was sure he was going to die. If you let me out of this place tonight, I'm going to preach a gospel that is bigger than racism. You see, these officers thought that through fear and intimidation that they could stop the work that he was doing. What they didn't realize is that that very fear and intimidation that was meant to stop him actually pushed him on. He wasn't serving himself. He was serving someone much greater than himself. In this text in Acts chapter 4, that's exactly what's happening. The early church is being, these religious leaders are trying to suppress, trying to suppress this new movement. And they're thinking that through their intimidation, through their rebukes, through their trying to lay hands on them, and, and all, that some of these men are the same men that crucified Jesus. And they think that if they can intimidate them, that they can stop this way. But the exact opposite starts to happen. And Luke wants to give us this story so that we as the church know how to handle situations like that. I think Luke would say something like this, that, the risen Christ has commissioned us, and because of that, we got to find our strength in who he is in the face of fear and opposition. So look down at me. Let's look down at the text for a second. First, uh, the risen, the resurrected Christ sends us in his authority, and that's the first place that we draw our strength as witnesses. Uh, we draw strength from his, his authority. Look down at verses 1 through 12. We're going to spend... Uh, most of our time in a a few specific verses. First, in verse 2, he says, Being greatly disturbed, they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Skip down to verse 7. So these religious leaders scoop him up, take him to jail, and now they put him in the center of everyone. And and it says this in verse 7. When they had placed him in the center of this council, they began to inquire by what power or in what name They have done this. Skip down to verse 10. It says, let it be known. Now uh, Peter and John are giving their defense. Let it be known to all of you and to all people of Israel that by the name of Jesus, the Nazarene, whom you have crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands before you. Already in the book of Acts, the resurrection has come up several times. Acts 2.24, Acts 2.31, we won't look at all of them. 
Acts 2.32, Acts 3.15, Acts 3.26. The, the fact that God raised Christ from the dead keeps coming up in this letter, and that's because the early church was obsessed with the resurrection. The resurrection to them was absolutely everything. The resurrection of Christ is what legitimized the authority that they had to speak to whomever about Jesus. These are the religious authorities who had had all the seminary degrees, who had all the scriptures memorized, and these dudes that are preaching, John and Peter and his gang of boys, they were uneducated and untrained men. As it were, they didn't have any authority to speak. Um, but the resurrection is what gave them such authority. This is what Paul's talking about in Romans chapter 1. In Romans chapter 1, Paul says this. should be up on the screen. Um, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, <clears throat> which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scripture concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power. How? By the resurrection from the dead. Paul says the resurrection does something very specific for the Lord Jesus. It affirms him, right? Our creeds and our confessions say that Jesus was the Son of God from, he's very God of very God, from eternity past. He wasn't created. So how, according to Romans 1, is he declared the Son of God? He's declared the Son of God, or it's affirmed that he really is who he says he is by the resurrection. The resurrection is everything for the Christian. This is why we worship on Sundays. For, 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 from, from all of Jewish history, right, the Sabbath was on Saturday, but when Jesus rose from the dead, he rose on the first day. And the early church says... The early church father said, we want to, every week, we want to remember that we don't serve a dead God, that he resurrected. And we want to come to church on Sundays, and we want to remember that we serve a living God. So we're going to worship on the Sabbath, our time to stop and get rest. Our Sabbath rest will be the day that our Lord rose, because only in his resurrection do we have rest. You know, the ancient Jews, they, they realized, they understood this concept, this concept of divvied out authority, right? As Christians, we are to live in the authority that Christ has given us. And the ancient Jews understood this mostly because of the tax collectors. So if you remember the tax collectors, they would be these Jews who lived in Jewish communities, but they served Rome. And, and other Jews despised them for this. They, these, these tax collectors because they had the backing of the Roman government, would go and take siphon money from, from, from their own people. people. People hated them because of this. Rome would send these tax collectors to, to, connect, to collect a couple of dollars, and they would take 10, or to collect $100, and they'd take 200. But they, knew, they were confident in the authority in which they were backed. Even if the Roman soldiers weren't with them, they knew that if these people crossed them, that they were actually crossing Rome. So it behooves us as a church to never let it be said of us that those tax collectors trust in the authority of Rome more than we trust in our resurrected Savior. If it's true that he sent us in his, in his authority, 
to be, to be his witnesses, then that might mean one thing, right? It, it, mean, it might mean that we need to be prepared to be a witness, right? We need to be prepared to actually communicate our faith, not just in our works, but in our words. So let me give you just one little, one little tool to help you share the gospel with the people around you. And it's, it's really, really simple. It's your testimony. Answer these three questions for yourself. How did, how did Jesus invade my life? What were the circumstances surrounding that? How did Jesus invade my life? What captivated me about him? What made Jesus beautiful to you? And then lastly, why are you living now to serve him? You can write down something as simple as that in paragraph form, and that can function as a testimony that you can take with you in the authority of Christ anywhere you go. When when your server is serving you at the whiskey bar or at Nacho Mama's or wherever you go after church, you can pull that out and just say, hey, I know it might be a little awkward, but can I just tell you something about myself, a way that Christ changed me? And you don't have to be the the greatest at apologetics or systematic theology or or whatever. The power of your story is extremely important. Amen. Um. And let me just say this to to anybody in here that maybe doesn't know Christ and might be investigating. There's nothing more important for you to investigate than the resurrection of Christ, right? You maybe have heard that there are a lot of seemingly goofy things in the Bible, like a guy getting swallowed by a fish or or somebody splitting the Red Sea and people walking on dry land or uh, somebody, a serpent talking to people and tempting them to eat a fruit. Like all these like really, really strange things, but... At the end of the day, the strangest thing in the Bible that happens is that the Son of God dies and resurrects from the dead. He wasn't in a coma. He died, and he resurrects. And if you can wrestle with that one truth claim that the Bible has, then, you can, then we can reconcile all the other claims as well, right? If we can come to some conclusion that it's true, and if we're in here worshiping and you, you claim the name of Christ, what you have said is, I truly believe that Jesus died and he resurrected. And I'm placing all of my hope in that resurrection. So if you're, if you're wrestling with whether you believe this whole Christianity thing is true or whether um, you, you want to commit yourself to it, I want to commend two, two books to you that might help you in that, in that uh, way. One is The Case of the Resurrection by Lee Strobel, and the other is More Than a Carpenter by Josh McDowell. I think there is no, there's no more important truth for us to wrestle with than is it true that Jesus resurrected from the dead? Because if he did, you'd be a fool not to follow him, to give his whole life, give your whole life to him. But if he didn't, we are gathered for no reason. This whole Christian thing does not matter if Jesus did not raise from the dead. And as Christians, we believe that he did and that because of that, he sends us out in his authority. Not only are we sent out in his authority, we're sent out by his spirit. Luke is reminding the church that God himself is not only sending us, as it were, pushing us, but he's actually filling us with a power that we can't, feel, we can't be filled with on our own. Look at, look at verse 8. He says, <coughs> Peter, then, so these guys are, these religious people are coming to confront Peter and to stop him from doing what he's doing. And in verse 8 it says, then, then, Peter, uh, then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit said. 
So the Holy Spirit fills Peter before he starts speaking. Then verse, uh, verse 13, it says, Now as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and, excuse me, untrained men, they were amazed, right? They've been filled with this power that's outside of themselves. Here's how they respond in verse 19 and 20. Peter, but, uh, verse, verse 19 and 20, it says, But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. But we can't stop speaking about what we've seen and what we've heard. The Bible says something really interesting about each and every one of us. It says the moment that we give our lives to Christ, we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1.15, we're sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, right? The Holy Spirit now dwells in us. We are his and he is ours. But it doesn't stop there. It gives us some specific commands concerning the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 5.18, do not be drunk off wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. We have some active participation in the Holy Spirit's possession of us. Um, 1 Thessalonians 5.19, do not quench the Spirit. So what, what's being communicated in all of these different verses, I think it's simply this, that the filling of the Spirit is not some exercise of any particular gifts or um, doesn't express itself in in one particular way, but it is a surrendered life to the God that now lives in us. And we can, in the moment, surrender to him and be filled with him, or we can, in the moment, say, nah, I want to do it my own way, and, and quench the spirit of God. And I think this feeling doesn't come just from in-the-moment prayers, but from a lifestyle of prayerful surrender. If you look at the book of Acts to where we have gotten so far, to where they are right now, it starts with these patterns of prayer, right? They see the resurrected Christ, and then he ascends, and, they, and then he's gone, and they don't know what to do. And they're like, well, what do we do? And an angel comes and says, quit staring and looking at yourselves. Go do what he said. So they go to this upper room, and they have no idea actually how to fulfill the mission that Christ has put them on. So what do they do? They lock arms and pray. We don't know what we're doing. We don't know how to do it. So we're just going to devote ourselves to prayer until God answers. And then Acts 2 happens. After, after praying, God fills them with the Holy Spirit, and the gift of tongues comes out, and all these people come to Christ in one day. And at the end of that, at the end of Acts chapter 2, the, these people are, are in joy because of all the things that God has done. And what do they do? They, they gather around. Like, we don't know what to do next. Let's huddle back up and let's pray. Let's pray and let's devote ourselves to prayer. And after devoting themselves to prayer, then Acts chapter 3 happens. And this, this dude who had been, who's 40 years old, who had been lame his whole life, miraculously, he, he gets to walk. And it leads us into where we are right now. So there's a brother by the name of H.B. Charles. He wrote a book called It Happens After Prayer. And, um, and I think that's exactly the, the case for us. Um, that, that whatever we're looking for, whatever we're trusting God for, it happens after prayer. In the uh, cinematic thriller, two of, the, two of the greatest American actors of all time, Michael Jordan and Bugs Bunny, they star in 
Space Jam. And, um, and it's, a, it's a riveting plot, right? These aliens, they want to, they want to take over Looney Tunes, and they want to enslave them and take them to their planet. Um, but the Looney Tunes say, no, you got to play us in the game of basketball, and if you beat us in basketball, then you can have us. So they abduct Michael Jordan, and they're, they're about to play this game, right? And it, they start playing, and through the first half, the Monstars, these aliens, are destroying the Looney Tunes with Michael Jordan, right? So they go into halftime in the locker room, like, really defeated, and, um, and Bugs Bunny, being the trickster that he is, he writes, uh, he, he takes Michael Jordan's water bottle, and he writes secret stuff on it, right? And, and Bugs Bunny says, Mike, you've been, you've been, hang, you've been uh, holding out on all of us. The reason you play so great is because you've got this secret stuff. And Daffy, Daffy Duck steps up, and he's like, oh, Mike, you're holding out on us. And he takes it, and he swigs it, and then he gets real swole, like, all, uh, automatically. And then all the other Looney Tunes see it, and everybody starts drinking the secret stuff, and they get pumped up, and they go out in the third quarter, and they start killing the Monstars, right? I mean, they start, they start destroying them. Then about midway through the third quarter, they run out of the secret stuff, and, and they get really discouraged, and they say, well, now, now we're, we're doomed. And Bugs Bunny says to them, uh, that was just water. You had this in you the whole time. You just had no idea. I think that's true of us as Christians, right? You see certain people doing evangelism, which is a really scary word sometimes, or certain people inviting others to church or being on the mission of God, and we say, there's no way I can do that. They've got some kind of secret stuff. But God says, I've given you the Holy Spirit. You've had this in you the whole time. The question is, are you going to cultivate a surrendered life to the Holy Spirit, which mostly manifests itself in prayer? So, Quick question, in, in, our, in this church's missional communities, what do our times in prayer look like? Does it look like the early church of Acts 1, 2, 3? Does it look like we're gathering together and we don't know exactly what to do, but we know that we've got to do it and we've got to have God's power to complete it? Is that what your prayers look like? Do your prayers in your missional communities look like devotion? If somebody were to walk into it, would they say, Oh, these MCs, they're devoted to prayer. That's why they're, they're filled with this, this power. They're devoted to prayer. Does, does prayer look like a priority in those groups? And then the other thing I, I would say about, specifically about the filling of the Holy Spirit, is generally that happens when we put ourselves in some kind of awkward positions. And I think that's, my, I think that's the biggest hurdle to to evangelism and sharing the gospel. It's not how much you know. Um, it's, not, uh, it's not having the specific, you know, rebuttals to apologetical questions. It's, it's not that. I think it's we get really scared of how awkward it's going to be for the first 30 seconds of that conversation. And maybe you say, well, you know, it's easy for the pastors to share the gospel with people because they're, they're professional Christians, or it's easy for, you know, someone who, you know, does this all the time or has all the answers? Thank you. I had a little baby bottle too there. But um, it, it's really easy for, for these other people to do that. But, man, that, that's not true either. Again, you have the Holy Spirit. My, <clears throat> my um, second year in Valdosta, uh, I had a cousin come to Christ, and um, 
he was an introvert of, of all introverts, right? Like he just, he would just rather sit in a room and think than interact with people. But the gospel transformed him, hit his heart and began to change him. And, um, and we were having a conversation very similar to this. I'm like trying to help him build his faith. And I'm trying to say, okay, now a part of the normal Christian life is being able to share this with others. So let's work on you learning some tools to share this with someone else. Now, who, who's going to be the person that you share it with? And, um, and he was just super, super nervous. Like I said, an introverted guy who'd rather just live in his own mind and think and read. And, um, and now I'm asking him to do this extremely awkward and personal thing. But by faith, he wanted to do it. He said, okay. So he calls up one of his friends and says, hey, can, can we get lunch? And they go out, and he shares the gospel with, with this guy. And I, and I wasn't with him. And, um, and it probably, honestly, wasn't the greatest gospel presentation that ever happened, right? But he came back to my dorm and was, like, almost jumping through the roof in excitement. Like, I can't, God actually, you, and then I, I started sharing this verse, and I didn't even know that I had that verse memorized. And, and, and he was just, he was juiced about what the Lord had done through him. And that, a lot of times that's what happens in order to experience this kind of feeling from the Holy Spirit We've got to step into really awkward positions. Um, and it's real, I promise, I, like, like I said, like uh, Ben mentioned, I'm the campus director at, uh, for Campus Outreach at Payne College. And man, I've been doing this for a while, this like evangelism discipleship thing, and it doesn't get easier. The first 30 seconds of me saying, I want to share about Jesus with you is always awkward, Right? I, just want, I thought you just wanted to have lunch. Now you're talking to me about the most personal thing in my whole life, what I think about God. But after the first 30 seconds, it gets real normal. So I, I just encourage you guys, have the awkward conversation. And um, in my time at Georgia Southern, there was another staff guy there with Campus Outreach. And um, he would do something really, really sneaky. We'd have these, um, these, these campus prayer times where we'd all come together and we'd pray and we'd pray missionally. We'd, we'd, he'd say, okay, now y'all break up and pray for two people on the campus that you know doesn't know Christ. And we'd break up and we'd pray for five, ten minutes just asking God to change them and, it, you know, all these kinds of things. And, um, and then when we'd stop praying, he'd say, okay, now everybody pull out your phone and text that, those two people and tell them that you want to get lunch with them. It was really awkward, but what he was doing is he was making, he was forcing us to press through some of the awkwardness, and it bore fruit. Put yourself in awkward positions, and the Holy Spirit will get you out of them. So God has, the, the resurrected Christ has sent us in his authority. He sent us by the power of his spirit, but then he's also sent us in the surety of his mission. Verses 23 through 28, this is how it how this thing concludes. Uh, the disciples actually come out with their lives. They weren't sure if this council was going to crucify them like they, like they had just crucified, it, crucified their Lord Jesus. But they come out unscathed and they're amazed. Verse 24, when they had heard this, they lifted up their voices to God with one accord. They, they go back into prayer thanking God, right? Verse 25, Lord, we get it now. You made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. You are in control of everything, and you are doing something with this church 
that we had no idea. We now realize that we're being sent on your mission. He further goes on to say this. Verse uh, 20, end of verse 25 and 26. Why do the Gentiles rage? So they start quoting Psalm chapter 2. And Psalm chapter 2 is a messianic psalm about Jesus. And where it says there, why, why did the Gentiles rage? You know, the Hebrew word for that is goyim, which means nations. What there's, what, what's being said there is everybody might fight against this whole church thing. The whole, all of the nations might take arms against it. And what do you do? Psalm 2 says you laugh at them. You scoff at those who think that they can hinder your church and its mission. It's ridiculous to you. And what they start to realize is we're on a mission that's much bigger than ourselves. We can draw strength from the resurrected Christ because we know from Psalm 2 that nothing is going to stop it. Nothing can stop it. Verse 28, he goes on to say, um, he, he walks through uh, everything that happened to crucify Jesus. Who was, who's being held accountable for all the things that were going on? And then verse 28, he says, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. God has not taken his hand off the wheel of history. His hand and his purpose is driving history somewhere, and he's using the church to do it. Uh, Jason Terry, in 2011, uh, he played for the Dallas Mavericks, and um, I believe he was a backup. He was the backup shooting guard that year. Um, come off the bench, knock down some threes. That was, his, that was his deal. The Dallas Mavericks breezed through the Western Conference Finals that year, and um, finishing it off by, I'm pretty sure they swept the Lakers, which was, my, which was my team, so I was a little depressed about that. But they sweep the Lakers, and um, they go to their first practice um, for the finals. And Jason Terry got some, got some new ink on his arm. On his arm, he has a Dallas Mavericks logo wrapped around an NBA Finals championship trophy. Before they even play a game, he's got it tatted on him. And it says, Dallas Mavericks 2011 champs. Um, it's it's really audacious, right? Um, he, but he, he was sure. There was this opposition that was coming against them, right, called the Miami Heat. And they had LeBron James and D. Wade in his prime and uh, 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 Chris Bosh and, and, and a handful of other. They were going against the Monstars in a lot of ways, right? And they didn't know exactly how, how we're going to make it through the... And Jason Terry said, no, 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 I'm confident. Before we even play a game, it's, it's done. We're going to be the champions. At the, I know what the coaching staff, I know the schemes that we're running. I see how Dirk is, is shooting the tray. I, I, I'm, I'm sure, I'm so sure I'll, I'll tat it on me. I know for a fact we're going to win it. And they actually did. Um, man, do you know how sure the mission of God is? Do you, think he, do you think Jesus might win, or are you confident that game is over, right? It, it's go, it's going to happen, right? We're, we're going to conquer. We're going to win. And I'm on a mission that is impossible for us to lose. 
because it's the risen Christ's mission. Um, man, if God, if God is putting somebody on your heart to share, to share the gospel with, man, just do it. <laughs> I know as simple as that sounds, even if you don't know all of the answers to all of the questions, even if it's something as simple as can I invite them to church, man, there is no losing in this mission. You'll get rejected sometimes. You might even get made fun of from time to time. But at the end of the day, we win. Uh, John Lewis is a U.S. congressman. He also marched um, in the famous Selma March. He was 25 years when he was marching across the uh, Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma. And uh, he just recently did an interview that's on Netflix with David Letterman. Uh, Letterman, and um, he just talked about the experience that it was um, and how terrifying it was to be on that march that day in 1965. Uh, So David Letterman and John Lewis in this interview, they're, they're actually walking the bridge as they talk, and they get halfway, and they stop, and he said, this is, John Lewis said, this is where I saw death. He said, this is where I saw death. He said this, though. He said, but there was something behind us. Though we were terrified, there was something behind us that was pushing us forward. And he said, I like to call it the spirit of history. From from this text, what we know is what was pushing those marchers in 1965 is the same thing that's pushing God's church right now. It's the spirit of the resurrected Christ. We go forward in his authority. We go forward by his power, and we go forward on his mission, and nothing can stop us. <clears throat> John Lewis, they get halfway across the Selma Bridge, and here come the police officers with the billy clubs and um, some on horseback, and they come, and they, they just brutalize these Selma marchers and push them back. John Lewis goes back to the church, and um, and he's just they're they're all just distraught. He ends up having to get taken to the hospital, um, but but just a few days later, they gather together again, and the famous Selma march happens. They march across the bridge, and not only do they march across the bridge, they march march to Montgomery, Alabama, and it functioned as this turning point in the civil rights movement. David Letterman asked, uh, asked John Lewis this. He said, is it fair? Um, can you really preach to not be afraid? And John Lewis said something really helpful. He said, um, he said, David, sometimes pre- pretending not to be afraid is just as good as not being afraid. There's fear in being a witness for Christ. There's fear in having these awkward conversations. But because of who God is and who has sent us, we've got, even in light of the fear, we've got to keep pressing forward. And again, uh, I'll say this in closing, to those of you that maybe don't know Jesus, this is what the gospel offers us, that you never, 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 never have to rely on yourself again. Jesus doesn't send the church and say, okay, you better perform and it better be good, and if it's not good, I'm going to strike you. 
No, 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 no. He says, you go and you go in my power and I'll fill you with my spirit and I'll send you on my mission. And if you don't know Christ, right now you're living in your own strength. You're living in whatever your own personal mission is and you're tired. And, and you don't know, you don't, you don't, you have to depend on yourself and it's got you so wound up. But Jesus says to you, come to me, you weary soul, and find rest. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Um, thank you that you are uh, the resurrected one. And I pray for this particular church. Oh, God, be gracious to us. And would you, uh, would, would their witness on Broad Street and on down, in, in the downtown area, would it be real? Would it be vibrant? Fill us, oh, God, with your spirit. Not just this particular church, but the churches in the area, Lord, your people. Fill us with your spirit. Fill us with your spirit, and, and would we be a witness and would we transform uh, this community uh, for the sake of your mission in the world? In Christ's name, amen.